my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. At our last class we commenced the study of chapter 7 and got as far as verse 9. And with verse 9 that we look at this evening, we come to the beginning of what we know as Yahweh's covenant to David. And I believe we made the point, as we concluded our last study, that in verse 9, from there on, the wording in the Hebrew is in the future tense. And that's really very, very important. I was with thee, is certainly in the past tense. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight. In the Hebrew it is, and will cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and will make thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. It's really worthwhile giving a few moments thought to this expression here, and have made thee a great name. It's really very interesting to consider that as that is applied in the future tense, it's identical to the promise that Yahweh made to Abraham. And it's as though God is saying to David here, You have witnessed already the way in which I have sustained you in the past, the way I have been faithful to you throughout your life, the way I have guided you, guarded you, directed your ways, protected you from all things that have been uh, against you. But now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you in the future. And in this phrase here, have made thee a great name, The common word in scripture for name is the word Shem. And of course we almost immediately identify the word Shem with the Shem of the book of Genesis, the son of Noah, who also we believe we identify with Melchizedek and of course the Melchizedek priesthood. So In effect, Yahweh is saying, I will make thy Shem great. I will make thy name great. And this is what he said to Abraham, I will make thy name great, thy Shem great. Because the same word occurs in both passages, both here in relation to David and in Genesis in relation to Abraham. So, while this is speaking of the name in that question, there is no doubt that that is the way in which it is used. But it's worthwhile that we remember the way in which the Melchizedek priesthood is used. How it represented Shem, or Shem represented the Melchizedek priesthood. We have, for example, in Psalm 110, a psalm that we come back to again and again in the course of our studies in the life of David, where in verse 4 of Psalm 110, it was forecast, foretold by Yahweh, that as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, he would become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there we have Shem associated with Melchizedek or the name. But you know, there's another angle on this as well. If we keep a finger in there and go back to Genesis 11, we see the attitude of the Gentile mind and the Gentile attitude toward the Shem or the name, the name that they should have. They should have a great name that is being associated with the name of Yahweh, of Israel. But in Genesis 11, you know how that we have here the Tower of Babel, 
and how in the first verse it tells us that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a Shem. And in that passage, it's most likely that they're not actually referring to the, the word as simply a name, identify themselves by a name. But remember that Shem is alive here at this particular time. Verse 31, there's a reference to Shem. That here is a situation where they have rejected the Shem or the Melchizedek of Yahweh that he provided for their guidance and their direction, who was the Most High of God. So here in the days of uh, Nimrod, they said, let us make us a name. But I believe more accurately what they're saying there is let us make us a Shem. In other words, we do not want the Shem of Yahweh. We do not want the Shem of the Creator. We're going to build our own tower. We're going to become united. We're going to become as one. We're not going to have any problems whatever with anything that this fellow Shem or Melchizedek might say to us. We're going to go our own way and we're going to do things the way we want to. So you see, there is some significance in this phrase that was used in relation to Abraham. I will make thy Shem great. And here to David, I will make thee a great Shem. Certainly it means name. But let us not to put aside the connection there with Melchizedek, both in relation to the way in which Shem, or the name, is regarded by those who are faithful to the truth, and the way in which the Gentiles despise the Shem of Yahweh, who, of course, needless to say, as we all know, was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word here is relating to the covenant that is made. And we know that the word covenant, we always hear in 2 Samuel 7 refer to the covenant that Yahweh made with David. It's probably opportune at this time in relation to this verse that we remember that the word covenant is an English word. And of course it's a word that's not used very much these days. It's a word which signifies a binding agreement or contract or firm promise. A binding agreement or contract or firm promise. And in our English version, it has been rendered in the authorised version and other versions as well, from the Hebrew word berith, B-E-R-I-T-H, berith. And it is a word that is associated with cutting, which might seem rather strange. But of the word covenant, or berith, Gesenia says, since it was the custom in making solemn covenants, to pass between the divided parts of the victims. And it's rather interesting to note the way in which the word is used, or this practice is outlined, in Genesis 15 and verse 10, in relation to Abram, and then later on in Genesis 21, verses 22 to 30. And a passage that's rather interesting to look at is its usage even up until the days of Jeremiah. And Israel throughout their history understood the significance of the making of a covenant. And in Jeremiah chapter 34 and verses 18 to 20, this is what we read. 
And I will give them men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain, and passed between the parts thereof. The princes of Judah, and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests, and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. So here we have a covenant that Yahweh is making with David. And you know the word berith is sometimes used in a slightly variant form wherein it means something which cleanses. So when we put those ideas together in a scriptural setting, the word berith conveys the idea of the making of a binding agreement upon the basis of a sacrificial victim which has the power to cleanse. And that is why the significance of this word berith is so important throughout scripture, wherever it is used. And this is what Yahweh does when he makes a promise to somebody, such as he made to Eve in the Garden of Eden, to Abraham, and then later on here to David. And of course, in, in looking at this word, berith, and looking at the way in which uh, it, it has this, uh, this compound meaning, the making of a binding agreement upon the basis of a sacrificial victim which has the power to cleanse, we can see how beautifully that word is linked to the doctrine of the atonement and how it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, his sacrifice, and then his victory over the grave. So we know that it is through the perfect sacrifice of Christ that we have access to Yahweh, and the hope of sharing in the fulfilment of these wonderful promises that were made in Eden, that were made to Abraham, and now here are made to David. And so in verse 10, Yahweh begins to unfold the promise further. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Let's look at that part of the verse first of all. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. David, having been given a personal promise, we find that Yahweh now describes through the vision that the prophet Nathan received, he now describes the blessing to come upon the entire nation. And the context that we should always bear in mind in relation to verse 9 and 10 particularly is the reference or the prophetic reference to a time in the future when the nation of Israel will no longer be divided. They will no longer be at sixes and sevens with various views and ideals and so forth. It speaks of a unified nation. And of course, later on in later verses here, when we get down to 12 and 13, it's showing that they will become a unified nation under one wise king and ruler. And you know, a people can only become unified in spiritual matters when they have been educated in the right things, when they know what is right, when they understand what is right, and when they all speak with one voice and one mind. And as incredible as it is to think of, considering the past, and perhaps especially for us at the moment, the present history of Israel, 
the bickering, the division that is going on in that land today among those people. When we consider the whole history of that nation, to imagine a time when they will all be in this state, when they will be of one mind, you see it's going to take a powerful education to bring that about and a ready acceptance on the part of the people to accept those things that they are taught and that they are developed in. So you see, here is the lesson in regard to Israel after the flesh. They will become of one mind. They will become united. They will become one people with one voice in one cause and they will all speak the same things. But you know, although this word is talking about finding a place for my people Israel, although it unquestionably applies to the final ingathering into the kingdom of Israel after the flesh, it also applies to Israel after the spirit. As verse 13 very, very clearly demonstrates. And incidentally, the future tense is continued throughout these verses, as we said earlier. We need to remember that, that if Israel after the flesh is going to become united, they're going to accept one set of teaching regarding their Messiah, their Saviour, and about their God, and about the things their God has revealed, about the way in which He requires them to walk, the life He requires them to manifest. If Israel after the flesh is going to become one voice in the Kingdom Age, and united in one hope, with one purpose, in one religion, in the truest sense of the term, how much more so should Israel after the Spirit, during this period of their probation, when Yahweh is putting one and all of them to the test, how much more so should Israel after the Spirit speak together with one voice and one mind and one purpose, united in the one hope of Israel? You'll notice here in verse 10 the heavy emphasis upon the words that are chosen to stress a permanent regathering of the nation. There is probably an oblique reference here to Psalm 132 or perhaps later on Psalm 132 alludes to what is said here because we have looked a number of times we have been drawn to Psalm 132. But the words here stress a permanent regathering of the nation. Notice the words there. I will appoint a place, will plant them, that they may dwell. A word which means, incidentally, in the Hebrew, to dwell permanently. To dwell and to move no more. And those words, of course, have never yet been fulfilled and we await their fulfilment now. At this time, we are watching and waiting. But while we are watching and waiting for the fulfilment of this promise in relation to Israel after the flesh, let us be very certain that we do not simply discount Yahweh's words here to David as being associated with the nation of Israel. When clearly in verse 13, we have a reference to the house that the Lord Jesus Christ would build for Yahweh's name, that is part of Israel, that is related to the hope of Israel. And so therefore it becomes very, very important. And the final words there in verse 10 are, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before times. Rotherham renders that, neither shall 
the sons of perversity, again humiliate them as at first. That's a much better rendering. Neither shall the sons of perversity again humiliate them as at first. So in other words, Israel has long been subjugated to Gentile powers. Even as today, Israel after the Spirit, the ecclesias of God throughout the world, have no voice in affairs or in the governments about them. Not simply because we don't want to, but because the world doesn't want to know in this present dispensation. The world and world leaders do not want to know the way out of their problems and the way in which they could solve the difficulties that face the world today. So it has been with Israel throughout their history. They've been long subjugated to Gentile powers. But the time is going to come, as it says here, when they will be raised to superiority above the Gentiles. They will be raised to a level above all the Gentile nations. But you know, as we think about that, and we rejoice to contemplate the time when that will become a reality. Let us pause to consider that they think that they are superior to the Gentiles even now. When in actual fact, spiritually, they are no different. They think they are superior. They really do. And they have said so on various occasions and many of their leaders have done so. We'll remember picking up a, a book uh, probably 20 or 30 years ago written by David Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of Israel. And the book was simply called Israel. Some of you may have read it. Very interesting book and a very fascinating book. But one part of that book that I've never really forgotten, although I can't quote the words to you verbatim, but in actual fact what Ben-Gurion says there in this particular page of the book is that people reading this book may wonder how it is that the Jewish nation, century after century, for thousands of years, have suffered trial and persecution and every form of suffering and every attempt to annihilate them, but they have remained as a distinctive people and nation. Why is that so? And he says, there is only one answer to that, the superiority of the Jewish people. And I've never forgotten reading that in that book with such sadness, because when I got to that part, I just found it just so tragic. But you see, we have got to be very careful that we don't fall into a similar pattern of, of weakness. We have no superior position today. We are in the position that David is here, when as we saw at our last class in verse 8, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. My servant David. We had a little bit to say about that term and that terminology. So you see, Israel have got to go through a lot more affliction yet. Even as in our own lives, day by day and week by week and year by year, until the coming of the Lord, we are being purged, we are being put through trial, we are on probation, that we might remember the truth of God's word, that we might remember our covenant relationship with him, that we might remain faithful to those things into which we were baptised and which we have wholeheartedly espoused and that we do endeavour upon the basis of the word to speak with one mind and one voice about the things of Almighty God. And so in verse 11, the, prophet, the vision of the prophet unfolds a little further. 
ever since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and will cause thee to rest from all thine enemies. Still in the future tense. Also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Notice the way in which verse 11 begins. Since the time. We find the revised version renders this and I will cause thee to rest from all thine enemies. Of course, it reminds us of the Sabbath rest of a thousand years, does it not? No doubt this word rest, although it is not the word Shabbat, the common word for Sabbath. It is no doubt making reference to that of the time when they will find rest, when David will find rest, when Yahweh will find his resting place as we've learned from Psalm 132, in the midst of Zion. And so now he tells David, you desire to make me a house, but how could you really possibly make me a house? Contrarywise, says Yahweh, he will make thee a house. And note the emphasis, he will make thee a house. In other words, Yahweh would do for David what David could not really do for God. So God now proceeds to tell David how he would do this. And the key to the fulfilment of this promise is he will make thee an house. And that would revolve around the special seed that was to come that we're going to read about in the next verses. Precisely as the seed was promised to Eve in Eden the same way as in which a singular seed was also promised to Abraham. Remember from Galatians 3, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, singular, which, says Paul, is Christ. So in verse 12 he goes on and says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now this is fundamental, basic doctrine. We know that, but let's look at it. When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, is an expression that means that the events promised in this covenant would begin to be fulfilled after the death of David. This covenant could never have applied to Solomon, as some try to do. And in fact, most uh, clerical commentators, you'll find, do this. They do not see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly in this covenant at all. But we know that it couldn't have applied to Solomon because it says specifically, when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers after you're dead. And we're all aware of the fact that Solomon ascended the throne while David was still alive. David actually abdicated the throne to be sure that Solomon was placed upon that throne before David died. And we learn of that in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verses 28 to 34. Then says Yahweh, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And we need to bear in mind that it indicates that one would come who would be a very special seed, singular, in the Hebrew. Let's remember that. It is a singular seed. It indicates that one would come who would be a very special seed, directly descended from David. 
And of course we know it refers to Christ. The New Testament begins with those words, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul emphasises in Romans 1 and verse 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ came as the seed of David according to the flesh. And Peter reiterates that again in a direct reference to this promise in Acts 2 verse 29 and 30. So that we always need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was both Son of God and Son of Man. He represented the, the, the line of the throne from David and I will establish his kingdom. Which reminds us, of course, that the kingdom will be the restored kingdom of Israel. And we all have many references marked in our Bibles that show that that is the case. But you see, now we come to verse 13. And verse 12 has laid the foundation for what is now to come. Because the next statement states, He shall build an house for my name. And you know, with this reference to a singular seed, as in the promise to Abraham, it has a primary application, not to bricks and mortar, but to men and women. It's very important for us to bear this in mind. It's very often the case that when, uh, sometimes when folk are prepared for baptism, and uh, they make their confession of faith before being baptised, they somehow or other very often see this primarily as relating to the temple that will be built at Jerusalem, but that is not so. Because Yahweh does not dwell in bricks and mortar. He does not dwell in inanimate objects. The divine objective is God manifestation, not human salvation. And so therefore, the primary reference in these words, he shall build an house for my name, relates to the building of a spiritual house constituted of men and women in whom the word of God richly dwells to the point where when the time comes for the Lord Jesus Christ to assemble the saints before the judgment seat, those who have will be found to have honoured that privileged situation, will be changed into divine nature and become the vast multitude of the divine name in God manifestation. So here are those being referred to who become illuminated by the word of life, the word of truth, and they permit its influence to transform their lives after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the covenant victim, they become cleansed and purified and thus become heirs of salvation. Now, it's important that we look at one or two passages here and perhaps even mark them into your Bible or take them down a note so that we can uh, make sure that this is really uh, well situated in our minds. In uh, the first of Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, we're going to look at... Uh, two or three passages here, just so that we can link them in our minds with what we're reading here in, in the covenant made to David. He shall build an house for my name. Where is the house then? In the first of Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, at verse 16. Know ye not, says the apostle to the Corinthians, the believers, that ye are the temple of God 
and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Then he adds, let no man deceive himself. We could read further there. Now with that, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and uh, verse 20 and 21. Here we have this, the analogy that is really based upon the tabernacle. In verse 19, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are being built upon. It's in the transitive sense, or the continuing present tense. And you, as a body of people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, called a covenant relationship and to the objective of God manifestation, you are being built upon the foundation. There's the language of the temple. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and here is the way in which the tabernacle was built, in whom all the building, being fitly framed together, joined together. The word, one of the words, there's three words that are associated with that word framed, but the key word there is a joining word, a word which signifies to join, are being fitly framed or joined together, as though you are one building, groweth unto, or rather into, an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God in the Spirit. Now you see, these things, these references make it very, very clear. Remember in uh, Hebrews 3 and verse 6, where Paul says there, that uh, whose house are we? Remember how he refers to, actually it's worth looking at, uh, as well, if we just make a quick turnover to Hebrews chapter 3, the way in which Paul takes the example of Moses, uh, who was mentioned in uh, Brother Travis's uh, comments, uh, introducing, introductory to the study tonight, in relation to uh, his special position in the place of Yahweh, and that is dealt with here by Paul in Hebrews 3 and verse 5, where he speaks of Moses. And here he's contrasted with Christ. Moses verily was faithful in all his house. And the house referred to there is not Moses' house. It's the house of Yahweh that is the subject of these verses. Moses verily was faithful in all his God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his house. The word own doesn't occur there. You need to take your pen and put a gentle line through that so you don't destroy the word, but it will indicate to you that the word own does not appear in the text. It's the same house. You see, Moses was a servant in all Yahweh's house, but Christ as a son over his house. What's the house? Whose house are we if we hold fast? 
It's all very beautiful language. And it's all related to the way in which David was promised that this seed would come and he shall build an house for my name. Now, one other passage, and that is in the first of Peter, chapter 2. And you'll remember only two will, the language here in verses 5 to 9. We might not read them all, but what we will read is verse 5 and a few other verses that follow where Peter now addresses the believers to whom he's writing and he says, Ye also, as living stones, not lively, but you see, here is the analogy of the temple. But here we don't have inanimate bricks or hunks of stone that are joined together by mortar. By no means. We are living stones and the truth must live within us. Ye also as living stones are being built up. Again, the continuing present tense. A spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ and so forth. It goes on in verse 6, the reference to Isaiah, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, and really right through until verse 9, we've got the language of the temple. But you see, ye are being built up as living stones. Here is the temple that is so really very, very important because this will be the temple to which the nations will be drawn, not merely to a building, and we're not in any sense whatever denigrating the temple of the future age, in any sense whatever. What we're trying to do is to put it in the correct order. And you see, the Lord was discussing this, this very subject, when in John chapter 14 and verses 1 and 2, remember how just before this, he had taken them to the temple and said that there shall not be left here one stone upon another. It's all going to be destroyed. And they, the apostles, the disciples just couldn't believe that that could happen. There shall not be left here one stone upon another. And most people believe that that prophecy in uh, Matthew 25 verse 1 was fulfilled in AD 70. Well, it wasn't. It still hasn't been fulfilled. Because today you can go to Israel, and we've all seen pictures of it, even if we haven't been there, and the stones of the foundation of that temple are still there. And the Lord was referring to the prophecies of Ezekiel and Psalm 48, when the great earthquake will split them out of olives, and what is present the site of the city of Jerusalem will be flung up into the air and raised up to a much greater height than it is now, and then those final stones of that ancient temple will be dislodged to make way for the new one. But you see, having shown them that, the Lord then says in John 14 and verse 1 and 2, uh, he says in Weymouth's version, which is very interesting, he says, in my Father's house are many resting places. See, remember Psalm 132. Here is the place of my rest. Here is my resting place. It's interesting that Weymouth renders it that way. Some versions render it. In my Father's house are many abiding places. The King James Version, so beloved by clergymen, which they intone piously at funerals. Uh, In my Father's house are many mansions. So everyone goes to heaven and everyone gets their own mansion. 
you have a choice of a three or four bedroom or however big your family is or going to be or some that you're expecting to arrive a little later, you have the choice of what you may want. But that's got nothing to do with what the Lord is saying. Because in, your, in, a, in a house, how can you have many mansions within a house, an actual house? You can't do that. I mean, it defies logic, apart from English grammar or Greek grammar for that matter. So when we understand that the Lord says that in my Father's house, are many abiding places or are many resting places, as Weymouth puts it, we can see that the Lord was diverting their attention away from the temple. It's as though he was saying to them, look, well, all well and good, this temple that the nation glories in and that Stephen was going to be put to death over, and the Lord too for that matter, that, that this temple is going to go but what you must do is not have your mind centred upon this temple here in Jerusalem. That is not Solomon's temple anyway. It's a temple that was built by Herod. But do not get your mind centred upon this like your faithless brethren who cannot see the truth. By faithless brethren, I mean kindred uh, members of the Jewish nation. He's saying here, what you must do is get your mind centred upon the house that I will build in accordance with Yahweh's promise to my father David in the second of Samuel chapter 7 and at verse 13. In my father's house are many resting places or abiding places. In other words, there will be room in the spiritual house of Yahweh for all whom he will call, for all who will respond to his extended mercy. In other words, what the Lord is speaking about in John 14, verse 1 and 2, is God manifestation. And the building of the house made up of men and women in whom the word of God dwells richly and who will become God manifestation. They will become the Yahweh Elohim of the millennial age. And upon that basis, in the second application, this part of the covenant will find a fulfilment in the building of a literal temple, the most glorious house that has ever been seen upon the face of the earth that will be built on Mount Zion in the age to come to which the nations will be drawn. But let us be sure in our own minds that they will be impressed more than anything else when they see the divine glory above that temple and when they see that divine glory manifested in the perfect saints to whom they will be able to talk and with whom they will have free social intercourse and, and interaction between them as the saints will teach the mortal people, Jew and Gentile alike. And many of them with their problems and their weaknesses and failings will tend to say to the immortal saints, oh look, you wouldn't understand this. You wouldn't know what I'm going through. You wouldn't know what I've had to deal with because you're immortal. You're, you're, you're immortal. You're of a different nature to me. And the saints will then be able to say, look, we've been through exactly what you're going through. We've been through that. And we have become the house that the Lord Jesus Christ built throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, a house for Yahweh's glory. And as far as the literal temple is concerned, we're not short on references to those, are we? We uh, recently went through it with uh, a portion of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7 to 9, with our um, brother Gavin. We know Ezekiel 43 and those other chapters in Ezekiel, Zechariah 6, Zechariah 8, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 56 and so forth. So it's all there. 
But let us make sure that we understand the way in which the, the priorities must be understood in relation to verse 13. And that we see the exhortation that is there for us. If these things earlier on are spoken of in verse 9 and verse 10 are spoken of concerning Israel after the flesh, what about ourselves as Israel after the Spirit to which privilege we have been called? And so verse 13 then says, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we notice that in verse 12 it has mentioned his kingdom. But now specific mention is made of the throne. Now that part of the promise will be fulfilled when the throne of David is restored. uh, From which of course this seed Christ as we know will rule. Perhaps our most important reference that we've probably all got marked in our Bibles on that is Luke chapter 1 verse 31 to 33 that he will inherit the throne of his father David. And in Matthew 19 and verse 28 when he told the apostles when Peter said look we've given up everything for you we've followed you everywhere for three and a half years what are we going to get? What's going to happen with us? Remember the Lord said that when the Son of Man cometh in the regeneration the rebirth of the nation ye shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Then in verse 14 we find that God continues through the prophet Nathan and says I will be his father and he shall be my son which means that the promised seed, as we said a little earlier, would be both son of David and son of God. So he would bear the nature of David. He would bear the nature that is a condemned nature. And remember that the only way in which the human race could be saved was for sin to be totally overcome and a victory gained over it in one of Adam's condemned race. And this would be done through the Son of God, who would also be, of necessity, the Son of David. He had to be the seed of the woman. He had to be the seed of Abraham. He had to be the seed of David, which in every respect requires him to have been born and to come into the world, born of a woman, as Paul says in Galatians 4 and verse 4. And so in Psalm 2 and verse 6 and 7, he's referred, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the Son of God, which is quoted in Acts 13 and verse 33, which applies that particular psalm, Psalm 2, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 89, verse 27 to 29, the promise is also made. And remember in such passages in the New Testament as in Matthew 16 and verse 16 when Peter gave his great confession Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so having come thus far we find that by and large the world goes horribly wrong with the rest of verse 14. If he commit iniquity I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now this part of the promise has given rise to numerous interpretations. But what we have to do is let the word speak for itself. We ask ourselves the question, was the Lord Jesus Christ ever likely to disobey his Father and thus become the recipient of divine wrath and punishment? We don't believe that such a thought as that is tenable at all. And we all know that that's the case. When we look at the various ways in which it's translated, we know that a lot of brethren quite prefer the uh, rendition or the translation that's given by Adam Clark 
We've heard it quoted by a number of brethren. You will very, re- very rarely ever hear me refer to Adam Clark. But I do refer to it here because it's not really good enough. Adam Clark renders this phrase, Even in his suffering for iniquity, I shall chasten him with the rod of men, with the rod due to men, and with the stripes of, due to, the children of Adam. Now that sounds a lot better, and it certainly is superior to the King James Version, but it is still not strictly accurate. And the, the tenses that are used here are absolutely vital to the understanding of this passage. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now how are we going to understand that and see it in relation to the truth as well? I remember many, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, maybe even longer, brother came to me and he had some knowledge of Hebrew, uh, which I didn't have and still don't have to this day for that matter. But I did have some lexicons and some sources that he at that time didn't have himself. And he was trying to put, prepare somebody for baptism. He was having a great problem with this person on, this, on the particular verse who would not accept it, said it could only apply to Solomon. And so, with his brains and my concordances and other avenues that I had, we spent quite a number of hours working over this until we believed that we found what was right. And this is what we've got here. In, in the King James Version, there we have it in our authorised version, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now, in trying to unravel this, the last thing in the world I want to be is technical. But for once, I'm afraid I've got to mention some facts here that are really very, very essential to the case. The Hebrew tenses, and this is how they're defined, the Hebrew tenses in this phrase are in the high field infinitive, which is the causative of kal. Kal is the simple active tense. Now, I don't want anybody to be confused by that and I'm not quoting it to, to, to show that there's any brilliance anywhere on the understanding of the Hebrew language or the tenses or anything else as well. If you want to write it down and maybe put it in your Bible, you can do so because there are not too many Christadelphians in discussing the truth with people who haven't had a problem with this verse in trying to show that it does refer to the son of David who is also the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at it, this is what we're going to find. And I do want to mention this at this particular point. But having found out these details concerning the Hebrew tenses, which took a long, long time, we then turned to every translation that we could find. We started with the Revised Version. We went to all the others, the Revised Standard Version, Young's Literal, Rotherham, everything. Altogether, I think we consulted about 12 to 15 different translations. We could not find one to support our findings in relation to that, that statement. Until, when we'd exhausted all other avenues, I don't know why we didn't start there, but we decided to look in Eureka and see if Brother Thomas made any reference to this. Now, Brother Thomas in Eureka, Volume 2, let's get up a bit higher, page 28 in the Logos edition, or page 12 in the Black edition. 
renders that phrase in this way, absolutely magnificent. Whom, in his being caused to bow down, do you see the idea there of a willing sacrificial victim? Here is someone bowing down, willing to die, willing to give his life. So Brother Thomas renders it exactly as we found in the Hebrew tenses. Whom in his being caused to bow down, I will chasten him with a scepter of men relating to the power vested in the Roman authorities ruling over the people of Israel at that time. And of course the power vested in the priests who were the rulers in Israel at that time. And with stripes from the sons of Adam. Now that follows the literal Hebrew. The only place we could find that was in Eureka. We couldn't find it in any translation. And here's something that is rather interesting just in passing. We've got it up high enough. And that is that in Weymouth's translation of Philippians 2, verse 2 to 8, we don't have the time to look, look it up, but you'll know the context there is about the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ resulting in his sacrificial death. Weymouth renders that being recognised as truly human, he humbled himself and even stooped to die. How does Brother Thomas render? In his being caused to bow down. What does Rotherham Wayne Al say? Being recognised as truly human, he humbled himself and even stooped to die. In Philippians 2 and verse 8. Now that is the significance of that passage. And it's really very, very important that we understand it in that particular way. So the Lord Jesus Christ would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And he would receive, in the process of doing that, the suffering that would be heaped upon him by the sons of Adam in all their wickedness and iniquity. And then finally, in verse 15... The prophet tells David, my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. Now you see, this is again a positive statement. My mercy shall not depart away from him. We might say to ourselves, well, wait a minute, how could God promise that? When the Son of God has yet to come, he's got to live this life of perfect obedience for 33 and a half years. He's got to then willingly stoop to bow down in the sense of offering himself freely and willingly as a sacrificial victim, which we dealt with earlier under the heading of the meaning of the word berith, which is used for the term covenant. How can the Father be so certain? The answer is, of course, that Yahweh has foreknowledge. Saul had failed. That's now past history. We know about that. As I took it from Saul, God's mercy was withdrawn from Saul because he proved unworthy to receive it. But you see, here in relation to God's son, who would be David's son, David is assured that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, will overcome the flesh. That's what it's about. David is encouraged with this. He will bear your nature. But remember, I promised you, he will also be the Son of God. And he's going to overcome the flesh. My mercy shall not depart away from him. And God could only say that if he knew 
that the Lord would succeed. How did he know that the Lord would give perfect obedience? The answer is found in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, where we know and learn there that Yahweh has foreknowledge because it says there that he knows the end from the beginning. And he says, my counsel or my purpose shall stand. So this is not uh, a matter of anything other than foreknowledge. Yahweh knows it all from the beginning to the end. And finally here, thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Before thee. Promise forever before thee. David, you will be rewarded with eternal life. You will eventually come to divine nature. And you will be there to see it. To see it all. So David knows for a certainty that this is his one and only hope for a life after death. And let us here tonight just notice what David says about this in the Psalms. In two passages, in Psalm 71, which first of all, which shows us the astonishing faith that David developed. A faith that he developed because of what the Word taught him. Because of what Yahweh promised him. He believed it. Like Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Psalm 71 and verse 20. Thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles shalt quicken me again and shall bring me up again from the depths of the earth. There was his hope of resurrection. And in Psalm 17 and at verse 15, he expresses a hope with a sure and sureness and certainty that is absolutely moving to us today. One which we share with him, which we hope and pray earnestly will be our lot as we consider the faithfulness of David, the things that God promised him, the way in which remarkable truths were revealed to him in this covenant. When David, in response to the knowledge that God had given him concerning these things, says in verse 15 of Psalm 17, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And that is the hope that we all share with David.